The rise of consumer culture in the early decades of the 20th century corresponded with major adjustments of the woman's position in society. As the evolving workforce opened doors for women to enter, the consumer culture also had to expand. But how? In what ways can we see the consumer culture shift and adjust to make way for women rising in a world before multimedia advertising? Well, what if... Between 1900 and 1950, advertisements still held the mirror up to consumerism and exposed the root of societal wants. Welcome to Nishi History, where we eschew the most famous tales and spotlight the lesser-known stories, the forgotten names, the interesting places, and the random topics of history. With me, Jessa Briggs, we'll dive deep into the archives and embark on a journey scouring the nooks and crannies of history. Today's is a story of six advertisements of how these shifted from women as objects to women as consumers. It's the story of women being recognized as individuals in society. Today is a story of how women gained more individuality and buying power in the United States. But first, some background. Let's look at what 1900 looked like before we jump into the advertisement analysis. The early 20th century was just the fledgling beginning of the consumer culture that now drowns America. When you hear about the consumer era, quote-unquote, it's more commonly tied to the 1950s and 60s and is actually intrinsically tied to the Cold War. I might just do an episode on that because it is super fascinating, but where the 1950s and 1960s is the consumer era, that means it was the peak. That's where it really took off and never came down. We're going back to where it started in America, and today we have the lens of American women and consumer culture. Maybe I should just back up a smidge more and discuss what I mean by consumerism specifically. So obviously people have been consuming basically since we've been alive. We've always needed the basic necessities for being alive, for living. So when we're talking about consumer culture, it's going above and beyond. It's when the average person has enough resources that they can cover the necessities and then think about comfort. So when that happens, that consumption of comfort things, when that became a conscious act to be a part of the economy and secure your place in society, that's consumerism. In the United States, the first decade of the 20th century, so 1900 to 1910, also saw the beginnings of monopolization. Monster companies and things like multi-story department stores pushed out the small shops that had been the OGs from history forever before. An article from the MIT Press Reader by Karen Higgs said that, quote, the traditional objective of making products for their self-evident usefulness was displaced by the goal of profit and the need for a machinery of enticement, end quote. Further, these years marked the introduction of the idea that materials equal happiness. So the more you buy, And the more new stuff you have, the more happiness and the more value you hold. That is the consumerism mindset. So let's pause on the evolution of consumerism and insert our main character, women. So we're in the first decade of the 1900s, 1900 to 1910. This is just the teeny tiny beginning of consumerism. For the most part, people were still buying for necessity. 
In the earliest years of the 20th century, women were still very much in the background of society. Because they were generally not allowed in the mainstream workforce, and therefore did not have their own funds to spend, advertisements were aimed almost exclusively towards men. Men were the breadwinners, and so they were the buyers. However, that does not mean that women were absent in the ads. Instead, their bodies were used as objects of desire to pull in male consumers. So now, as always, I'm really going to implore you to go to Nishi History underscore pod on Instagram. It's got the six advertisements that we're analyzing today. I don't go into great descriptive detail because I'm really hoping that you will take the action to please look at them yourselves. I think it will really help you understand what I'm trying to express here. Our first advertisement, which exemplifies female bodies used in advertisements to entice male buyers, is an ad for mineral water that appeared in March 1910 in a magazine called The Sketch. A quick rundown of the ad. The top of the advertisement reads, Colonial Preference, the Canadian Mineral Water. Underneath is a beautiful woman in full makeup. Her dark hair is in a typically elegant 1900s updo. She's in a sleeveless dress that is very low cut, and she's holding up a glass dripping, presumably, mineral water. So the woman cuts off just under her breast, and the advertisement's words continue with Drink Magi Natural Spring Water, a cure for rheumatism and gout, sparkling, exhilarating, and tonic. Magai is bottled only at the springs in Canada, obtainable from all high-class stores, restaurants, etc. Now, there are a few things to consider when looking at this advertisement. First, mineral water promises a cure for rheumatism and gout, right, quote-unquote. This is a vivid signal that the advertisement is aimed towards men because even though we know now Rheumatism and gout, obviously, is not gendered. Anyone can get them. In 1910, these would be considered male diseases. So if these are male diseases and this is supposed to be a cure for male diseases, why is there a woman at the center of the advertisement holding the mineral water? Well, she is the representation of 1910's female beauty standards, and her dress is suggestively cut. According to Jean Baudrillard, mm-hmm. Badriard, (laughs) my French, it's horrible. Jean, in his book, The Consumer Society Myths and Structures, he said, as the consumer culture grew, the body was, quote, reappropriated first to meet capitalist objectives, end unquote. So we can comfortably assume that this sketch advertisement is using the woman's body to sell mineral water to men. Of course, Objectification of women was not new to the 20th century. It has unfortunately happened since the beginning of time. It continues to happen clear up to this day. But, and as Carol Lapolt in her article, Selling to Miss Consumer, says, advertising as a psychologically backed pursuit has been dated to around 1903. So that's what's new about this. Not the objectification of women, but the natural spring water using that objectification as a calculated advertisement tactic to sell their product, right? That was brand new to the 1900s. So this advertisement took the burgeoning ideas of consumerism and the cultural expectations of objectifying women and mixed them together to sell mineral water to men. 
That's the first decade of the 1900s. When entering the teen years of the 20th century, the shift from this objectification of women to targeting women as consumers started to rear its head. It was still a little baby bud, but Lope exclaimed that at this time, quote, numerous insights about what motivated women were being developed, unquote. And these insights were used to influence advertisements. But also, it's kind of interesting to look into why were these insights being developed in the first place? Advertising being a psychologically backed discipline, advertisers must have recognized an up and coming consumer pool and so started to pull right psychological data from that pool so that they could target the ads. And why were women an up and coming consumer pool? Well, the women's suffrage movement was at its highest peak. Women in the United States were fighting publicly and loudly for the right to vote, making themselves more visible to wider society. So our example of this small shift from objectification of women for men to incorporating women into the marketing tactic, meaning having women as a consumer in mind, comes from 1916. Our example does. It's two advertisements from the September edition of the Ottawa Free Press. So we're in Canada for this one. The first ad's headline is Fatigue from Poisoned Blood. I'm guessing this was supposed to be a question, like fatigue from poisoned blood, but there is no question mark. So maybe it is a statement. Anyway, there's a lot of small text in the middle of the ad that I'm not going to read, but up in the left of the ad is a woman. Unlike the woman from the mineral water ad, the woman in this ad is clothed in a very modest dress, complete with the neck height neckline, like it goes up to her chin and long sleeves right down past her wrists. She's sitting in a chair with one elbow on a table, the hand holding up her head. And in her other hand, she's holding some kind of paper. She looks really worn out and or exhausted. At the bottom of the ad in big bold letters that match the headline is Dr. Chase's kidney liver pills. So that's the actual product. Our second ad from the same newspaper, same edition and everything doesn't have any visual aspect to it. It's got alternating small and headline text. So the small text is just the extra information about like the five W's of the product. The headline words read, all women need Beecham's pills for better health. These two advertisements show the start of advertising's shift in attitude towards women. It's not the big shift that we'll see after World War II, but it is the beginning, the little inklings of the shift. In 1916, World War I was waging, leaving holes in the workforce that only women could fill because they weren't allowed to go fight. Women were found more often in public spaces and understood to be wage makers capable of consuming. Like I said, we see these same ideas exacerbated after World War II. They started here. Women had more access to society now uh, in the 19-teens, including more education and job opportunities. This worked not only to enter women into society and the economy, but also gave them at least some sort of independence and their own expendable income. 
Modern Women's article that's linked in the show notes summed this up really well when they said, quote, although many families still upheld the ideal of a woman's place being in the home, the definition of home had expanded beyond four walls. The lines between public life and private life blurred, end quote. So while the women were far from being advertisements main audience, they did finally now have a spot at the table. Advertisers were starting to realize that they were a potential part of the consumer economy because a, a woman's place is in the home, but you can take care of the home from without the four walls, like going out and buying furniture that you don't need, but that you want buying a new high-end vacuum, like things like that. That's what we mean when they're expanding beyond the four walls. They're doing things outside of the physical house, but it still is directly tied to like housework and motherhood and things like that. So the Beecham's Pills advertisement plays off of these changing ideas by appealing directly to women. The tagline, all women need, but without a beautiful woman, like the mineral water advertisement, exposes this as an advertisement aimed at women. It's educational and it's straightforward and it's not targeting male desire as a luring tactic. The kidney liver pills advertisement holds a little bit more of an ambiguous role. Its incorporation of a distressed woman could hearken to either a male or female consumer. So this is the one with the, the woman in the chair in the corner. For a male consumer, they could recognize like a damsel in distress figure or the symptoms of his female charges and feel inclined to buy Dr. Chase's kidney liver pills. However, the female consumer could read this advertisement just like they would read the beach and pills advertisement. And that is see the symptoms within themselves and consume on the promise of alleviated symptoms. What's really interesting is that these two ads, one directly targeting women consumers and one with a more ambiguous audience, appeared on the same page of the Free Press Ottawa. This really shows the changes in consumer culture that started to creep in during the 1910s, especially the change that female consumers were being considered simultaneously with women still being used as an advertisement object for male consumers. Now, the interwar years are where things really get interesting. Consumer culture altered dramatically. Matthew Hilton, in his article, The Female Consumer and the Politics of Consumption in the 20th Century Britain, argues that, quote, the consumer imagined from within the state apparatus increasingly came to be that of the middle class woman, unquote. In addition, technical advancements from the previous two decades, especially ones that helped with what would be considered the woman's role in the home, so like gas appliances that would help with cooking, running hot and cold water to help with cleaning and cooking, all that in combination with the end of World War I meant that necessity really gave way to comfort. There was now expendable time and expendable income that consumers could put towards the economy. The time and money allowed women to venture further into consumerism culture, and women-targeted advertisements started popping up all over the place. Here comes our third advertisement. It's from the December 1928 edition of The Sphere. I actually love the look of this ad, even though it does definitely still have misogynistic undertones. 
The main attraction of the advertisement is a big picture of a man in a suit and a woman in a flapper-like dress, but like a very classy one appropriate for a middle-class 1920s woman. They're both leaning over a big briefcase-looking radio. The attention grabber above the picture says, Jean Gerard and Anita Elson agree that any girl is lucky, lucky's in quotes, who get a selector portable wireless set for Christmas. Side note, Jean Gerard and Anita Elson were stars from this time known for their performance in Lucky Girl, which I believe at this time was a play, question mark? It was definitely a movie in 1932, which Jean Gerard directed. I'm not sure about the 1928, which is where we are. But anyways, I'm getting off track. Well, the assumption of this ad is that the man will buy his wife a portable wireless set for Christmas, right? That any girl is lucky who gets a blah, blah, blah. The ad is actually appealing to what it thinks a woman would value. So we've got the woman as a value consumer and then a man as the money consumer. Because we have the split of the value consumer and the money consumer, the selector ad is really tying in that idea, that consumerist idea that happiness is measurable and the measurement is new and money worthy things. A portable wireless set is not a necessity. And its gratuitousness is exactly what makes it an appealing consumer good. It shows that the consumer can afford comfort over necessity. Now, with that said, while steps were being made to include women in consumer society, the cultural idea of a woman's place, so a woman being a mother and a wife that takes care of the home, still drove the ads that targeted women consumers. Paula Ostrander said that a number of social anxieties whispered behind women who entered consumer culture between the 1910s and 1940s. She lists loss of female domesticity, social mobility, and morality as examples of these anxieties that followed women into consumer culture, meaning that as women were trying to get into this culture, people were scared that they were going to lose these things. Even as advertising shifted to accept women's needs and values and wants as part of their targeting tactics, advertising still focused on women staying in the home, not working women. The portable wireless set advertisement is clearly meant to appeal to a homemaking wife who is staying in her accepted feminine circle as she consumes this object. So, what we're seeing now in these in this late 1920s ad is the value consumer and the money consumer, which is most often considered to be one in this domestic scene. The man and the woman are working, I guess I should say in 1920s language, the husband and the wife are working together to create this full consumer, the value and the money. So basically like the woman is telling the man, where to spend his physical consumer asset and she's using her value asset. And that is the big change that we started to see in the 1920s. Okay, let's pause here to do another mini lesson about the evolution of consumerism. The 1920s and the 1940s were huge decades for consumer culture. The 1930s was actually just recovering from the Great Depression, so we're kind of going to skip that decade. It's not a great historian method, 
but it's my podcast. I can do what I want. And what I want to do is skip the 30s and combine the 1920s and the 1940s booms in consumer culture because they both barrel towards the consumer era. So these decades were when the idea of creating a need and then advertising products to fill the needs emerged. And when I say creating a need, that's the advertising tactic of like wrapping something extravagant, wrapping a want in the form of a need. So it's still comfort buying. It's not a necessity, but they call it a need. Businesses started to realize that they could get more money if they could advertise in a way that made people think they needed their project. In the MIT article I referenced earlier, Higgs explained the mindset as, quote, people are encouraged to board an escalator of desire and progressively ascend to what were once the luxuries of the affluent. Progress was about the endless replacement of old needs with new, old products with new, unquote. With this in mind, let's return to the female consumer. Just as the interwar period struggled to incorporate the woman consumer without making her lose her female domesticity or morality, please note the gigantic air quotes in my voice, the 1930s and the 1940s increased their target advertising towards women, but only the admiral mother-wife woman. Right? So how the 1920s targeted only the middle-class woman? There's only a very small portion of women that were considered acceptable consumers. While new luxurious needs were being created for men, like cars and cigars and golf clubs and whatever, ads targeted for women were explicitly for household items, meant to appeal to women who stayed in the home and did their wifely, motherly duties. You can also find ads for things like makeup and hair care products, but they are usually following this idea of like, you need to better yourself or your husband. So still staying in wifely motherly duties. But for us, we're looking at the type of example with the household items. And our example is from the April 1935 edition of the Express. Here's a rundown. The top of the advertisement is like a cartoon title. A mother is holding her sick child and there's a nun standing over them. A word bubble shows the mother saying, whatever can make Bobby so miserable lately, nurse, what can I give him? Then there's a whole conversation between the nun and the mother. And then the end of the advertisement has the big, bold name of the product, California syrup of figs, nature's own laxative. This advertisement appeals to a consumer who fits in a very narrow window, a female, middle-class mother, and also probably Christian, right? So that's the target audience. It is also a strange parallel with the selector ad from the 1920s, because remember it was aimed, this ni- the 1920 ad was aimed at the man as the buyer, but the woman as the value consumer, Like she would make the choice and he would make the purchase. With a California syrup of figs, the woman is buying, but not for her, for her child. This is interesting because she is still playing the role of value consumer and money consumer because she is placing the value on the product. The kid probably doesn't give a hoot. Um, But she is actually still not literally consuming the product. It's still not for her, which I kind of thought that was interesting. 
This ad is also probably the clearest example of the psychological side of advertising, besides maybe the mineral water and men's desire, because that was pretty blatant. This ad is operating off the psychology of motherly care. So it is creating that need that a worried mother with a sick child has to buy something to make the child feel better. And then it fills that need by pushing the California syrup of figs, right? And bam, the advertisers have a perfect target audience. Therefore, the advertisement exploits the female consumer's values as a deliberate attempt to steer consumer interest. The California syrup of figs advertisement steers the female consumer's interest into the domestic sphere. It calls for the female consumer to only consume goods that profit a homemaking lifestyle, sending us right back to the beginning that only middle-class mother-wife females were worthy of being targeted and considered as consumers. Advertisements during the 1930s to 1940s then had solidly placed women as primary consumers rather than just objects to consume like the first decades of the 20th century. But what respectable women were allowed to consume was still very carefully crafted to fit the social constructs of what a woman could be in society. So I've talked a lot about the 1940s. The post-World War II era is the blossoming of the consumer culture, which we're actually not going to get into today. I wanted to show the interesting evolution into the consumer era, which I think is what we've really gone through. The consumer era itself has to have its own like mini-series. It's incredibly fascinating, way too much to get into. But there is one final example advertisement that I want to share to solidify what I've been trying to say about the 1920s and to the 1940s and women consumers. So our last ad is from 1950, and it's for a hot point clothes error and dryer. The advertisement's main visual component is a female child, and in the right corner is a typical housewife, like 1950s housewife, holding a baby next to the advertised consumer good, aka the dryer. The advertisement's tagline is, Mummy thinks hot point, dot, dot, dot. So right away, the advertisement is clearly doing two things. It's feminizing the advertisement. Men aren't going to look at the angel baby and think, ah, yes, this is for me. A father in 1950 would see the baby and show the ad to his wife. Secondly, at risk of repeating myself way too many times, the ad firmly places the female consumer in the domestic sphere, housework and childcare being the two big selling points. So if you remember that article that I referenced earlier by Matthew Hilton, he really hits the nail on the head because he said that by the 1940s and the 1950s, quote, consumer interest was clearly constructed as the woman's interest, the women here which were much more conservatively defined, unquote. By 1950, women had gained their place as a primary consumer, perhaps the primary consumer, at least in, in value cons- con- consumerism, but their consuming behavior was carefully steered by the advertisement to only represent a domesticated woman living the middle-class life of wife and mother. So let's do a quick roundup. The tumultuous early years of the 1900s allowed opportunities for women to enter the consumer culture as consumers rather than objects to be consumed. 
The 1910s set the baseline of how women originally were invited into the consumerist sphere as objects to be desired and consumed. However, with technical advancements and two world wars, women negotiated their place as primary consumers and advertisements morphed to appeal to a woman's interests. However, wider society narrowly defined these interests by what a woman was supposed to be in the early 20th century Western society. Advertisements mainly appealed to middle-class homemakers, wives and mothers who stayed within their appropriate bounds of a domestic sphere, only giving women a small yet undeniable place as primary consumers and the rapidly expanding consumer culture. While that would slowly change in the latter half of the 20th century, our story ends here with the woman firmly securing her place as a primary consumer, but with narrowed consuming opportunities. All right, folks, that's it for today. I I actually feel pretty warm and fuzzy, to be honest. I love to tell tales with women at the center, so that was really fun. Um, if you enjoyed today's story, please like, rate, leave a five-star f- review, share the podcast around. I'm having a lot of fun with it, and I would really like more people to be able to share these stories with. If you have any strange, random, little-known historical stories and or topics, please email me at nishihistorypodcast at gmail.com. It's also in the episode description. And then finally, go follow the Instagram, which you should have already done to look at the advertisements. But just in case you didn't, nishihistory underscore pod. Turns out I really like visual dependent stories. So it really will only do you good. Go do it. Take my word for it. And I will see you next week where we'll open another time capsule into a Nishi tale in history. Mm -hmm.